Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Well, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. There's a little bit of energy in the house today. You know, we are celebrating, if this is new to you, we are celebrating the last week of Jesus' earthly life. As he rode into Jerusalem on the back of that cult, as Pastor Jessica read earlier in our gathering, He was going in to celebrate the Passover celebration, which was a moment in Jewish culture where they were commemorating their deliverance from the abusive power of Pharaoh. Now, Jesus, up until this point, he's been confronting and challenging the powers of this world. He's been confronting confronting all that is evil and sickness and sin, but this time's different. Jesus is going into Jerusalem not to challenge those powers. He's going to dismantle them. See, Jesus was born into a world where the power dynamics were set in stone. You you couldn't challenge the societal norms or the power imbalances that were in the world in that day. A freedom of speech, that was a luxury for the rich and the powerful. For Jesus, it was a corrupt world he was born into, where the rich and powerful, they got richer and they got more powerful. And the poor and the oppressed become poorer and more helpless. He faced formidable powers. When Jesus was born, the world he was born into was one of oppression. In fact, in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey marched into Judea, and with it, he brought the might of the Roman Empire. And he subjugated that land, and they taxed them, and they were ruthless towards them. He grew up in a world that everyone around him would have felt insecure and very vulnerable, always at the whim of Rome. But it wasn't just an oppressive world he grew up in. He grew up in a world that had been colonized. In fact, it was in 329 BC, another military power sweeped into Judea, Alexander the Great. Now, he was very unique. Alexander died when he was 29 years old, but he conquered the then-known world. Alexander, though, every time he conquered a nation, he wasn't, he, it wasn't enough just to subjugate them and to tax them, which was often enough for many military powers. No, no, no. He wanted to erase their culture. So he brought in a secular Hellenistic culture everywhere he went, and he brought the Greek language with him. So Jesus grew up in a world where he didn't speak the language of his forefathers. They spoke in Greek. Their language had been stripped largely. The culture had been dominated with a secular Hellenistic mindset. And it was always there was this undercurrent of tension between the ancient Jewish religious ways and the Hellenistic secular ways. Yeah, Jesus grew up in a world that had been colonized, a world that had been uh, subjugated and oppressed. There were power imbalances that existed in that world, and they led to abuses of power and misuses of power. On Good Friday, Pastor Jessica is going to talk about the misuses of power. Today, I want to talk about the abuse of power. And on Easter Sunday, we want to talk about the right use of power. You know what was interesting, though, about Jesus? It wasn't just the powers that put him behind the eight ball. 
God chose to plant him in the most insignificant village, in the most insignificant province, in the most insignificant nation. You see, in in 3 AD, Jesus returned with his family from Egypt. They had fled because Herod the Great had been killing young boys, a, a terrible atrocity. They had fled to Egypt, and when they returned, they didn't settle in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would have been the place, if you wanted your children to succeed, get them to Jerusalem. That's where the powerful were. That's where the educated elite and the rich were. Get to Jerusalem. But no, 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 no. Nazareth? Place that nobody wanted to be from. In fact, Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, when he discovered Jesus, I mean, he was so enamored, so excited, he wanted to share with everyone who Jesus was. And he went up to his friend Nathaniel and he said, I have found the one, the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about. And he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel responds, what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Could he have been more put in a more marginalized place Oppression, colonization, and insignificance. Listen, the world Jesus grew up in, maybe it sounds and feels a little bit like yours. Incredible vulnerabilities, incredible helplessness, and incredible insecurity. And representing all of that oppression and colonization was one family. And this family had deep roots in the secular Hellenistic way and had deep roots in the Roman oppression and ties to them. This patriarch of this family was a man named Herod the Great. Now, what a title that is, eh? I mean, any sort of moniker, if you can put your first name and follow it by the Great, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. Herod ascended to the throne in 37 BC, and he was unique. He clawed his way to power by any means necessary. Herod's way was incredibly consistent. He canceled anybody or anything that got in his way. He was ruthless, and he was abusive with his power. Herod had uh, approximately, they think about 14 children, nine of which were boys. He killed three of his own boys. One, just days before he died, he had him killed because he thought he was being, they were being a little too ambitious for his throne. In fact, the uh, Hebrew historian Josephus uh, t- records that Caesar Augustus once said in jest, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. Herod married between eight and ten women, mostly for political reasons, alliances. But he loved one. Her name was Miriam. And he did marry her for a reason. She came from a Jewish line of royalty. And he was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. So he was constantly at opposition with the Jews. So he married her. But he actually loved her. But the relationship soured. You see, Herod had to sometimes go back to Rome to shore up his power. Herod's addicted to this thing called power. And so he'd go back, whenever it was in jeopardy, he'd go back to Rome. It was a precarious trip. It was a dangerous trip. So he always left orders every time he left that if something happens to me, kill Miriam. Because if I can't have her, no one's going to have her. Well, Miriam hears about this. And this doesn't help their romance life very much. Apparently, that's not a very romantic line. You know, it's not like, I'll die for you, it's you'll die for me. (laughs) And in the back of that, Herod, like many people that are addicted to power, many people who are power hungry, he gives into his paranoia and his jealousy. A woman named Salome in the court whispers in his ear, 
And powerful people who are addicted to power are actually easy to control. And it was easy to control Herod. She wanted Miriam out of the way because he knew that she knew that he loved Miriam. So he whispered, she's not been faithful to you when you've been to Rome. And he believes it because he's paranoid and he's jealous. And so he murders her. Think about this man. All this power, all these riches, he kills his own sons and the only woman he ever loved. How could a man come to that place? It's because the love of power was greater than the power of love inherit. His love of power was greater than the power of love. A Rwandan philosopher, Bengambaki, he once wrote this. He said, nothing is sweeter and more addictive than power. The unlucky soul this demon possesses, he is not if he is not sacrificed on its altar, will sacrifice others to get it. Herod's way was incredibly consistent. He canceled anybody and anything that got in his way. But like many people, Herod was a bit of a mixed bag. He did some great things. See, Herod's way was incredibly effective. He got results. He got results. He got results so everyone would look his way. He, like some powerful people, do a lot of things to leave a legacy, to be remembered, to be noticed. And he did just that. He did some great things. He was the richest man that would have, anyone in Jesus' world would have known. You couldn't have left your house. You would have heard Herod's name as you walked down the street. You certainly would have seen one of his massive construction sites and heard the sights and sounds from it. He was the largest employer in Judea at that time. He built incredible things. He accomplished incredible things. He moved the nation of Israel into the first century. He modernized it. He brought prosperity to it. He built things that to this day, if you go to Israel, you can see them. In fact, we'll be announcing later this month that Pastor Keith and Pastor Jessica and I are going to take a tour to Israel next year. You might want to come and see some of his handiwork, some of the infrastructure that he actually built. Some of the things he built was, like, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, and it was glorious. Glorious. Now, why did he do this? Well, he's shrewd. Remember, he's not a Jew. He wants his subjects on his side, so he builds his temple. He built one of the most impressive military outposts in human history. It's, it was in a desert region in an escarpment, and the technology employed in it is just incredible. It's a place called Masada. But probably his crowning jewel was the city of Caesarea he built. It was the cornerstone. If Jerusalem was the cornerstone of everything religious, and we'll see some footage of, of, uh, uh, that we took when we were in Israel a couple of years ago of Caesarea. He built this uh, as a cornerstone of secular life, where Jerusalem was the cornerstone of religious life. And in it, he built a harbor that was one of the wonders of the then-known world, that brought prosperity to the region, the hippodrome, the amphitheaters, impressive. The big uh, a palace there with indoor pools and luxuries beyond measure, not seen in the world in that day. In fact, even Romans were jealous of some of the building construction and the ambition of Herod. Herod, I want you to hear is Herod was impressive. I mean, there's a part of you be going like, well, he does get things done. Look what he's done. I mean, skilled politician, check. Skilled leader, check. Skilled visionary, check. But for Herod, the ends always justified the means. Herod got things done by any means necessary. 
And that was the template for success in Jesus' day. That was the template. That's how you got ahead in Jesus' day. And sadly, I think it's still the template today. Enter Jesus, though. When Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he's tempted with the same temptation that you and I get tempted whenever we get a little bit of power to do things Herod's way. In fact, when he launches his earthly ministry, he doesn't launch with a social media campaign. There's no political rally. Instead, he launches his earthly ministry in a desert alone. You know what's interesting? He launches ministry alone, and he'd end his ministry alone on a cross. As a leader, I've often marveled at how Jesus was able to resist the sway of the crowds. The crowds couldn't control him. I even marveled at the way he resists the control, the attempted controls of his family, and even his inner working of his disciples. It's as if Jesus was always under a greater authority than all of them. There was someone he knew he would answer to. There was someone that he had put himself under his authority, and it was his Father in heaven. Listen, if, if you lead at home, at work, at school, just remember, someday you'll stand alone. Just like I'll stand alone before God and give an account for how I use the power that God placed in my hand, in my family, in my, in my workplace, in my ministry, and certainly the autonomy and the privilege that God has given me. How did I use it? For my own benefit or for the benefit of others? Jesus is alone in the desert, and you can read the account. It's beautiful in the Gospels. And it says that the evil one comes to tempt him, and he tempts him to take power, just like Herod had. In fact, these are his words. He says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, the devil said. When I think of all the reasons why people, Canadians, don't attend church, and in Western Christianity, so many people have kind of decoupled from their faith, I think the word power comes to mind. I think it's incredible that one of the greatest ironies in human history is how religious leaders, people who claim to follow Jesus, are constantly given into the temptation of power. Morally, spiritually, economic, military power, even political power. And these are from people who claim to follow a person named Jesus, who it says did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. That temptation for power made justification for incredible abuses of power. In history, Christianity has a spotty check record. We have some really crowning moments, but we have moments in the Crusades where thousands and thousands of Muslims were killed in the name of Jesus. We, we have moments with the Spanish Inquisition. We have the enslavement of people in the New World. We have the residential school systems more recently. What makes the temptation of power so irresistible? Author Henry Nouwen answers this question. I think it's really good. He said, maybe it's because power offers a shortcut to the hard task of love. It's easier to be your own God than to love God. It's easier to control people than to love people. It's easier to own your own life than lay down your life. You see, when the evil one came in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve that first time and said, the day you eat of the tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like gods, knowing good from evil. 
From that day, we've always been, we've been tempted to replace power, love with power, over and over. Jesus lived that temptation from the desert to the cross. He's tempted by the evil one of the desert. He's tempted by his own disciples, the crowds. Take power, Jesus. Take over, Jesus. And we face that same temptation to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. Hey, never follow a leader that's not under someone. Accountability is one of the beautiful gifts God gives us to allow us to make sure that we don't misuse or abuse power. But it's the love of power that leads to the abuse of power. This is why I think every leader needs to tend to their souls. And they need to value love over power and health over results. See, it's so tempting. Isn't results tempting? I, it's so, I mean, that's what you get praised for as a leader. You get praised when you get good results and everyone wants to clap about that. And you can tend not to care for your character, care for your soul or your spirit. And what happens in the ends is you may get good results, but how you did it leaves you less of a human being, leaves you less of an image bearer of Jesus. How we do it is as important as what we do. I, I, I was thinking of this. Like I've been leading in churches for 31 years this month. 31 years. I know I don't look that old. It's so funny. My, my wife, Shelly, always says, oh, you can't be that old. Nobody says that of me. No one. <laughs> you know, it's such a joy to lead. And I always see it as a privilege when people afford me positional authority and God affords me spiritual authority. It's a privilege. It's just such a rich privilege to serve in that capacity. But leadership is wearing. And so if you lead, be careful. It's chafing on your soul. It erodes your soul. It, if you don't tend to your souls, you'll be tempted to use your power like Herod did. Or you'll be tempted to give in to comforts that are destructive, both to you and to those around you. Almost two years ago, this board of deacons of this church offered me a sabbatical, uh, a brief reprieve to refuel and take a break. And, and I felt I couldn't say yes because I felt like at that time we were going through COVID and, and our church was going through some difficult and just transitionary times that we we're all part of that. And I felt if I stepped away, I would have hurt the church. So, uh, so I said no. But this year I've said yes. I, I've decided to take a break just to take a step back to refuel so that there's a healthier version of Jonathan Smith to lead in the next chapter. Uh, so as of May 1st, I will be taking a sabbatical for May, June, and July, and back in August. And I feel I can do it now because we have such a strong staff team at this church, a great board of deacons, great elders in this church, great volunteers. And I think I can say, anyone who's a part of this church family, if you're visiting, maybe you're just kind of in on a family conversation moment, but I know if you're part of this church, I know you sense the wind of the Spirit at our back right now. The Lord is doing something among us. So I can't think of a better moment just to take a break, to take a step back, and trust God with His church and the leaders that are here uh, to take that sabbatical. Because I want to be a healthy leader for this church. You see, this series... Oh, thank you, friends. This series is about power. This series is all about power. Something beautiful... Listen, power is not evil. Contrary to what you might hear, power is needed. 
Power is needed. You need people exercising power on your behalf. Sometimes you're positionally not as privileged as others. You don't have the wealth or strength or health or whatever. We all need power exercised on our behalf. Power is not evil, but the misuse of power and the abuse of power is so palatable in our culture and world around us, and it crushes people. Power is the ability to affect change. And I know I'm speaking to some people that feel like they're powerless for change. Powerless. You, some of you are even in places of power, but you feel powerless to change what's going on in society and the world around you. Children are in places where they're powerless, maybe to change the dynamic of a family or an outcome of a family. But this is the truth that we all have to remember. We have all been powerless. Every one of you have been powerless at one time or another. Jesus is born into a family, born of a virgin in Bethlehem to these parents that have no privilege, no wealth, no power, no political standing, no position. And scripture says this of Jesus. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Do you feel powerless? Do you feel helpless? Maybe helpless against the doctors who might have a, a verdict on your health and you're just saying, what am I going to do about that? I can't change my health. Do you feel helpless or powerless in the face of the economic trends in this world? Do you feel helpless or powerless against, at work or at school or maybe with a spouse or a partner in life? We've all know what it means to be powerless and we've all suffered an abuse of power at some point in time. Every one of us has. When I think of those power imbalances that exist in life, I'm readily aware of the fact that there's a power imbalance always between a parent and a child. Even as they get older, it looks different. But there's always a power imbalance. And at some point in time, if they age and they're around long enough, the power imbalance switches. And all of a sudden, the children are in a place where they have inordinate power over their parents in a feeble condition. And love demands you care. Love demands you sacrifice. But power demands that's inconvenient. And power demands your way. It's scrunching my way. Power balances exist everywhere in this life. In employee situations, within marriages and partnerships. And we've all suffered these abuses of a power. I, I was talking to a friend of mine who has a lifelong disability. And she began to talk about some of the power imbalances that she navigates every day and how exhausting it is between her and her caregivers, between her and a system that is meant to support her, but sometimes feels like it's doing the opposite. Even the power imbalances that exist between her and her able-bodied friends, the autonomy that they enjoy and the lack of autonomy that she has. When, you know, and I know you know well these power imbalances between men and women between young and old, between white and black, white and Asian, poor and rich, educated, uneducated. History is littered with imbalances and abuses. Littered with them. And friends, you'll hear in a moment, we're not done adjust, uh, addressing those issues either. One of the staff members of this church introduced me to this woman, her name is Sojourner Truth. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's an activist, 
on behalf of women's rights and African Americans. She was born a slave in 1797. Well, long time ago. She's famous for a speech she gave, Am I, Ain't I a Woman, was the title of the speech. And she worked until her dying breath for equality for all people. Here's a little excerpt of her speech, she said. She pointed, she's in a room, she was in Ohio giving the speech, and she pointed to a room, a man in the room who opposed women's rights. And she said, that man over there says women need to be helped into carriages and lift over ditches to have the best places everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over muddy puddles or gives me the best place, and ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns, and ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well, and ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most of them sold off into slavery. And when I cried out with a mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me, and ain't I a woman? Then the little man in black there, he says, women can't have much rights as men because Christ wasn't a woman. Where did your Christ come from? Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with it. I just love her cheek there. I love it. We live in this world of imbalances. We live in this world where privilege and power imbalances, they still exist. And those who benefit, and this is what, those who benefit from those imbalances will not give them up very easily. They just won't. As Christians, our example is Jesus, who used his power not to abuse people, not to control people, but to stand in front of people and free people. And that's your job if you're a follower of Jesus, and that's my job. Let's admit, though. We've, we've all been powerless. We've all abused power, or we've all felt the abuse of power. And let's even admit this. Maybe we've all abused power ourselves. See, I think Herod is a great lesson for us, a great story. Herod's way is the antithesis of Jesus' way. But before we can celebrate Jesus' work, can we all admit there's a little Herod in us? No? In Herod, we see what theologians call deep sin. They call it deep sin. Herod is not just a gospel villain. Herod is you. Herod is me. Every man, every woman. Herod teaches that our natural reaction to the authority and kingship of Jesus is rebellion. Our natural reaction to coming under the authority of Jesus is to rebel. If Jesus is Lord, though, we are not. We are not. Herod is what I am deep inside. Herod is a warning. Herod is not dead. Herod lives on in God's people. You see, there are two kings at war in your world, Herod and Christ. There are two kings at war in your marriage. There's a little Herod there. There's a little Christ there. Which king will rule your marriage? The one that needs to manipulate and dominate and control your partner? Or the one that will serve and love and sacrifice for your partner? In your workplace, in school, is there a Herod in you or Christ in you? 
Is the king, which king rules you? The one that leverages your personality, your giftings, your talents, your abilities, your capacities and everything for your own benefit or the one that sacrificially does it for the benefit of others? The core of Jesus' teaching, he said this marvelous teaching. I, I might, if you're brand new to church, I'd really encourage you to read what is called the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about a different ethic of living this life that was so counter the Herod way, so counter the way of this world. And in it, if I was going to boil down the Sermon on the Mount, it would simply be this truth. Do not use people. Do not abuse people. They are image bearers, made in the image of God beautifully constructed by God. And yes, we're all a little difficult, aren't we? Come on. If you don't think you're a little difficult, you're probably the diva. I don't know, I'm just saying. <laughs> and if you have power over children, be careful. If you have power over employees, be kind. If you have more than others, be generous. Because Jesus held those with greater privilege to a greater standard. He held them to a greater standard. We are to use our power not for our gain, but for the benefit of others. So I want to pray with you today on this great Palm Sunday, this moment where we honor and celebrate that moment when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He knew what was coming. They, a big fanfare. Hosanna. Jesus is going to take power. Little did they know, he wasn't going to take power. He was going to dismantle evil power. And he did it by laying down his life. And we're going into Holy Week, a week where you're going to have an opportunity to join us for prayer. Our, our host will tell you a little bit more of it as we pray through Holy Week. A week on Good Friday where Pastor Jessica is going to talk about the misuse of power and how that corrupted the world, and how that twisted, even it prevented the followers of God to even connect to God. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate that there's a right way to use power. And Jesus didn't take any shortcuts. And in, shortcuts, and in the end, he was glorified. I want to pray with three groups here today. We won't be long. I wonder if there's some people that are here that you say, I want to place my trust in Jesus. I feel powerless in this life. I want his power in my life. I'm ready to bow a knee to the king and say, not my way, but your way. Then I want to pray for those who've suffered great abuse of power. Because that lingers sometimes for years. That can be even generationally shaping. And I know this, Jesus is committed to your wholeness. And we are committed as a church to come alongside you. And then I want to pray for those who have the privilege and you have power in your hands because you bear a great weight. And I want to pray that the Lord will protect you and help you to develop a heart the Jesus way, not the Herod way. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in this gathering. We have celebrated your son Jesus We've made a lot of noise about him today. And God, we admit he's worthy of so much more than we gave him. God, we have such a limited picture and perspective of how great and awesome and loving and sacrificial your son Jesus is. But we invite your spirit into this place and online in this moment 
so that you could expand our vision of Jesus. You could magnify the single adult Middle Eastern man who laid down his life for all of human history. Would you magnify him in this place? And if you're watching online or in the room and you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, I'm going to lead us in a simple prayer. My words are not magic. You know what's special? He likes your voice. So you go ahead and you can say these words out loud or inside. Jesus, I come to you today on this Palm Sunday and I bow my knee. I surrender. I surrender my stuff. I surrender my, my dreams, my vision, my, my plan for my life. I surrender my pain, my brokenness, my hurt. I surrender my privilege and my power. And I say, not my way, but your way. Forgive me for anything that I've done that has harmed your creation, the people in my life, anything that I've done that has put a barrier between me and you, God, would you just wipe that all away and fill me with a brand new spirit, fill me with your spirit so that I can be a follower of Jesus. King Jesus, you lead I will follow. Then I want to pray with those that might be in this room. You say, listen, I know what abuse feels like. It might have been in a marriage relationship. might have been in the home you grew up in. It might be in the workplace. It might be broader than that. It might be what you face in society. You felt powerless, helpless, insecure, vulnerable, and people have taken advantage of it. People in authority who had the ability to help and they did the opposite, they helped themselves. I'd invite you into a real sacred place. I want you to know Jesus knows how this feels. He's been precisely where you've been. Holy Spirit, I don't know everybody's story here. I don't know everyone's story online, but in this sacred space, I know you do. God, I pray that you would move into those places of pain and brokenness and you would come in with healing. You would come in and bind wounds, God, and broken hearts. And God, where years or moments of abuse have diminished confidence and courage, has caused us to live small lives, would you redeem that and capture that back? And would you fill people with fresh confidence and courage and strength? God, would you give some of your power to help heal your people and lift them up? And then God, I pray for those in this room who have power, for all the parents, everyone who's maybe in a marriage relationship and somebody maybe has a little bit more power than the other, for all of those in, who have the privilege of leading people in workplace situations or in schools, in education, and they're in the place of power. I'd invite you, if that's you, just to hold your hands in front of you. And we recognize that what you've given us, if we have power, it's a gift from you. 
it's not for our benefit. It's to benefit those around us. Holy Spirit, I pray you would guard each of these individuals for using their power for any sort of selfish gain. And instead, God, I pray that you'd help equip them to use whatever privilege or power you've placed in their hands to give it away, to help more people to experience what it means to be on solid ground, to not feel so helpless and vulnerable in this life, but to enjoy, God, some of the strength that comes from living life and not seeing the limitations and barriers that have been put on them, but able to see those broken. And God, I pray you'd set captives free. May this church be a part of leveraging whatever influence it has, whatever platform it has, whatever resources or power it might have to do good, to give it away so that more people can experience what it means to have solid foundation in you, but also to be freed from the racism, the misogyny, and all of those things, God, that oppressive things that control people and seek to keep them down. Set people free in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.